Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 3.1, Kingdom Ingredients. Welcome back again to Trinity on Tap. If you were asked, what is the entire Old Testament about? And you had to answer that question with a single word, what would you say? What is the entire Old Testament about in a word? There's a number of possibilities, of course, and I often ask this question in my introduction to the Old Testament class, and I get some of these answers, for example, relationship, uh, covenant, love, uh, wisdom, forgiveness, uh, creation we had just the other night, and of course, the answer that inevitably comes up at some point, Jesus, (laughs) even though it's the Old Testament, uh, Jesus is always the right answer, right? Well, the word that I want to suggest and which I'm going to use as a framework for getting into the Old Testament here is kingdom. So with the notion of kingdom in mind, let me ask you another question. If I told you that you need four essential ingredients to build a kingdom, what would you come up with? Have a think on that. I say to you, you can build a kingdom and you need to tell me what four ingredients you would need to do that. What would those ingredients be? Well, the four I'm going to suggest are these. Uh, To build a kingdom, you would need people. You need law, some sort of rules to keep everyone in order. You would need leadership and you would need a place or land. So people, law, leadership and land. By the way, we're just scooting through a very quick uh, overview here. If you're looking for, obviously, more depth on all of these things, I'm just going to shamelessly say, sign up at Trinity College Queensland for a course, or even better, for a whole degree. That will resolve all of your life's problems, guaranteed. Um, There may be a small disclaimer in small print below. (laughs) So let's take a look at how these kingdom ingredients fit together. All right, we've seen how the first 11 chapters of Genesis are kind of an introduction to the whole Bible. And as an introduction, those chapters clarify the fundamental problem, which I spoke about in the last podcast, as the human propensity to muck things up, or you might say sin. So when we come to Genesis 12, we're introduced to the way that God is going to begin to resolve this problem of human resistance. And in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of Babylon. So Abraham is the starting point. From Abraham will come thousands, even millions of descendants, that is, the Israelites. And that nation in God's plan will be the means to an end. The end is that God wants to bless all nations. But Israel is chosen or elected, is sometimes the language used, to lead the way. I'll read you the first three well-known verses of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the rest of the book of Genesis then tells the story of Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Joseph. And through that family line, The nation of Israel is established, God's people. 
right? That was the first ingredient that we need for this kingdom. So we see that throughout Genesis, God promises a people to Abraham. But as I mentioned earlier, by the end of the book, the major problem is that Abraham's descendants are building a kingdom, not for Yahweh, but for Pharaoh, the wrong king. And these people therefore need deliverance from Egypt. And that happens through the prophetic leadership of a guy called Moses. And Moses is instrumental in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. And when they reach Mount Sinai in the desert, they're introduced personally to Yahweh at that mountain. And they're invited to serve and worship the king who has heard their cries and brought them into a land of their own. Right, so there we get the introduction to law and the idea of land. So Abraham's the starting point, and from this guy will come thousands, even millions of descendants known as the Israelites. And that nation, the nation of Israel, in God's plan, will become the means to an end. The end, or the goal, is that God wants to bless all nations right across the world. But Israel is chosen, or sometimes the language that's used is they're elected, to lead the way. Let me read you the first three known, uh, sorry, three well-known verses of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis then tells the story of Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Joseph, and through this line, this family line, the nation of Israel is established, God's people. And we've seen that throughout Genesis, God promises a people to Abraham, right? So that's where the people comes in as the first kingdom ingredient. But by the end of the book, the major problem which we've noted is Abraham's descendants are not building a kingdom for Yahweh. They're building a kingdom for Pharaoh, the wrong king. They're in Egypt. So these people need deliverance from Egypt, and that happens through the prophetic leadership of Moses. Moses is instrumental in bringing them out of Egypt, and when they reach Mount Sinai in the wilderness, in the desert, they're introduced to this God at the mountain, this God who uh, has heard their cries and brought them into a land of their own, this God called Yahweh. Now, I say that as if it was, you know, a pleasant experience, as if Israel is introduced to Yahweh and invited to see him and worship him, and as if they sat down to tea and biscuits and had a laugh about how rotten things were in Egypt and made plans for the, the future together. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, the way the Bible tells it is that Israel was so terrified when they encountered Yahweh that they asked Moses to ensure that this never happened again. You can read about it in Exodus 19 just before Moses uh, gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. But you see, at Sinai, the Israelites receive this law and they commit themselves to a covenant relationship with Yahweh, their liberator. So let's pause here for a sec. How does this covenant work? How does a nation that is hell-bent on resisting God and mucking things up sustain a contractual relationship with a holy God? Sounds complicated. How's this going to work? We're going to spend the next podcast exploring that in more detail. But in a nutshell, God makes promises to Israel as his adopted people, like an adopted child. What's Israel's part in that arrangement? Well, Israel's asked to give her allegiance to this king over other kings, 
That is, Yahweh is to be Israel's God and it's an exclusive relationship. No idolatry is permitted. In fact, because of the nature, the intimate nature of the relationship, idolatry is actually described in terms of adultery, a betrayal of a marriage relationship between Yahweh and his people Israel. My, my PhD uh, supervisor actually described the golden calf incident as being like Israel committing adultery on her wedding night. That's how serious this is, right? No sooner has Yahweh initiated this covenant relationship with this nation than Israel is unfaithful. And so it's like committing adultery on the wedding night. It's that shocking. The Ten Commandments are significant, of course, as well in all that, that covenant making. But they're not the only laws. There are plenty of other laws. I think I mentioned earlier, there are 613 other laws, which are often divided up into three types, ceremonial and civil and moral. But I won't go into that here. Many of those laws are further spelt out in Leviticus and in Numbers. Uh, and then much of the law is repeated again in Deuteronomy, which is essentially a really long speech given by Moses to Israel as they prepare to enter the promised land. So you'll see how these themes are coming together, right? You've got the people. That's one of the ingredients of the kingdom. They're brought out of Egypt and to the Sinai where they receive the law and they're promised a land that will become theirs as they go into it. The only other thing left is leadership, but let's carry on. So by obeying the law that God's given them, this people will become a nation of priests. What does that mean? Well, it means that this people will mediate between Yahweh and the other nations that inhabit the earth. Through their obedience to these laws, they will take on the character of God, which will ultimately draw all nations toward God. Listen to these three verses from Moses' super long sermon. Not the whole sermon, just three verses of it. He says this near the beginning when he's explaining the purpose of the law to the Israelites. This is Deuteronomy 4 verses 5 and 6. Moses says, See, just as the Lord my God has charged me, I now teach you statutes and ordinances for you to observe in the land that you're about to enter and occupy. You must observe them diligently. Why? Listen to this. For this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. So the idea in those uh, verses is pretty clear. It's that through Israel's obedience, the neighboring nations will be struck by the wisdom and discernment of this people and therefore drawn to their God, to Yahweh. The problem with that plan, of course, is that time and again throughout the Old Testament, Israel keeps breaking their covenant with Yahweh, who keeps renewing it with them. So things spiral further and further away from God's stated intentions for Israel till eventually they're, they're kicked out of the land, the very promised land that Israel understood to be tangible evidence of their covenant relationship with Yahweh. You see that? So this land was promised to them, but they end up being kicked out of it because they break the promises. Israel's removal from the land, her exile, as it's often called, is central to the Old Testament. Israel in the north is defeated by Assyria, and then Judah in the south is exiled to Babylon. So we have these two key events uh, in the Old Testament, the exodus and the exile. And I'd say that probably most of the history of Israel hangs off those two events. You could think of the exodus and exile as Israel's birth and death 
or Israel's marriage to Yahweh and subsequent divorce. That's the language used in the Old Testament. Or Israel's liberation from Egypt and then her enslavement again to Babylon. All of those images draw on biblical language. Now, at the same time that all that's going on, there's a fourth kingdom ingredient being explored throughout these history books in the Old Testament. Back in the middle of Deuteronomy in chapters 17 and 18, Moses gives out some basic job descriptions for a bunch of leadership roles, and then those roles are explored in the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. They're not explored in those books in theoretical statements, but in Israel's lived experience, as Israel lives in the Promised Land and then gets kicked out again. So let's let's take a brief look at these leadership roles. You can look up these passages and have a read yourself, of course. Uh, they're listed on the PDF. But the modes of leadership are these. Judges, who resolve disputes. Priests, who sustain faith. Kings, who uphold justice. And prophets, who speak on God's behalf. And then later we get a fifth leadership model added, which is sages, or wise men, or uh, who impart wisdom. So you'll notice that each of those modes of leadership has a different sphere of responsibility within Israel's life as a community. And that's how leadership works, isn't it? It's never wise to have one leader responsible for absolutely everything. So the judges are leaders who God raises up, as Israel needs them, uh, to have victory over oppressors, military victory. But towards the end of the book of Judges, we get a hint that something more is needed. So in Judges 17, 6, 18, 1, 19, 1, 21, 25, all of those verses contain this phrase, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And we start to get the sense that these judges aren't quite enough, right? The narrator is saying, things are getting worse and worse, they're spiraling out of control because in those days, there was no king in Israel. And twice when it says that, it also adds everyone did as they saw fit. So everyone's just doing what they want because there's no one enforcing justice. Um, And it's also made clear at the time that Yahweh is supposed to be Israel's king. Now that leads us into the books of Samuel, where Israel asks for a king. And more specifically, they say, we want a king like the other nations. Now that goes directly against God's plan for Israel because his purposes for this nation were not that they look just like all their neighbours and have a king just like all their neighbours. The plan was that they would look different. Remember? The purpose of the law is that it makes Israel look different. Um, If you remember that passage I read from Deuteronomy 4, it said, This will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples, who, when they hear of all this, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. So to cut that long story short, when God uh, hears about this, that Israel is asking for a king, God is upset. And Samuel, the prophet, is upset. Actually, Samuel is a a judge and a prophet and a priest. So there's kind of a few things going on there. And he anoints the first two kings as well. Even so, uh, God permits the Israelites to have what they're, they're asking for. And two kings are appointed. Now, one of them is what the people look for in a king, the tall, dark, and handsome King Saul, right? That's what the people were looking for, so that's what God gives them. But on the other hand, we're told um, that David is appointed because he has a heart after God's own heart, right? The young shepherd boy David. 
So in contrast to what the people wanted in a king, this tall, dark, and handsome fella, we get David. And there's a lot of great lessons and memorable stories in the books of Samuel and Kings. We don't have time to explore all of those here. But once that monarchy is established, a monarchy is just the kingship in Israel, readers are introduced to a whole series of kings, and most of them are pretty bad. Some of those kings, let's say uh, Solomon and his son Rehoboam, most of all, they seek the counsel of elders, which is basically a reference to the sages I mentioned earlier, the, the wise men or advisors to the royal court. So we get a little window into that wisdom school of leadership as well in these narratives. The sages will be back later in the wisdom literature, but here they advise these kings. And sometimes the kings listen and sometimes not. But coming back to Samuel, we have in Samuel, uh, as I said, he's the last of the judges. Uh, as a young man, he confronts and condemns the priesthood of Eli's family. He's also a prophet and he anoints the first of Israel's kings, both Saul and David. So in this very significant person, we get a sampling of all these leadership modes, and we see how they all interrelate a bit. But most significant probably is Samuel's call as a prophet. And I want to just say a couple more things about prophecy. There, there are two things that are unique about the prophetic mode of leadership. Prophets are unique first because they're not humanly appointed, right? They don't become prophets because their mum or dad was a prophet. And they can't just say, I want to be a prophet, so I'm going to be a prophet. They're always divinely appointed. So you nearly always get a story as well about God calling them and usually about them saying, no, thanks, God. And then God saying, yeah, yes, this is going to happen. And eventually they become prophets. The second thing is that a prophetic role is to keep all of those other forms of leadership in check. So the sphere of influence for prophetic leadership is you know, arguably even wider than that of a king. And you can explore this for yourself. Um, or you can have a look at chapter three of my book on the prophets sharing God's passion. But you'll find that when prophets come up against other forms of leadership, the prophet tends to win. They come out on top. Uh, an interesting, another interesting thing just to note at this point is that Jesus, in his time, takes each of these leadership modes to a new level. The actions and words of Jesus can be you know, explored under any of these paradigms, and you'd have a rich Bible study on your hands. Jesus as a sage, Jesus as judge, Jesus as priest, as prophet, or as king. All right, so in all of this, and there's been a lot of content in this podcast, we've, we've explored what God is doing in the Old Testament with some really broad brushstrokes. Let me just summarize that for you. God is establishing a kingdom. How? By cooking up four essential ingredients. And those ingredients were people, law, leadership, and land. And then under the leadership heading, we noted five modes of leadership in Israel. Judges, priests, kings, sages, and prophets. And as well as that, we saw that there are two key Old Testament events on all, upon which all of this stuff hangs, the exodus and the exile. Easy to remember because they both start with X. Well, so what? How is all of this helpful? It's a lot of information. What on earth is this good for? Fair question. Well, when I was first learning about the Old Testament, I remember just being intimidated by the fact that it's just so big, 39 books, many of which seem to sort of push in different directions, and I wasn't sure how to hold it all together. 
One of the most helpful things for me was just a bit of structure, you know, some broad categories for organizing this content in my head as I read. So I hope that these headings and subheadings can help a bit with that. Thinking it's all about kingdom, uh, it's all about people, law, leadership, land, there's these two key events and so on. But as we conclude this podcast on kingdom ingredients, I'd like you to just reflect on your own preferred mode of leadership. Most of us end up in roles of leadership in some uh, place in our lives, in some ways. And so I'm just going to read again these different spheres of responsibility and ask you to just have a think about which one you resonate with personally. And if one stands out, then you can look into it further. You could have a read of the description given by Moses in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, or you could look at some narratives about that mode of leadership and see what you can learn and apply to your life. But here they are. Have a think about which one of these stands out to you the most. Judges who resolve disputes, priests who sustain faith, kings who uphold justice, prophets who speak on God's behalf, and sages who impart wisdom. Catch you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.